You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. Go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal. Proceeds support this and other Feral Audio podcasts. Blue Velvet was on TV the other night, and like a lot of people, I forgot that the film was set in Lumberton, North Carolina. But as the movie went on, that made way too much sense to me, as this particular podcast we're about to play all occurred less than two hours away from Lumberton. It got me thinking about how you might think that the Black Lodge and these alternate universes that Twin Peaks suggests are sort of these dream worlds. You might think that David Lynch invented that, but in ways those are real places. And I think what's poignant about David Lynch is that he he draws from a time where conformism, Christianity, and obedience were extremely ubiquitous aspects of American culture. So behind that, there had to be a secret society of people that wanted to go to the other side or break taboos. And that kind of secret function had to have always existed, whether you were Kepler suggesting that the Earth was not the center of the universe or something. There always had to be a back room for someone to suggest an idea that was going to run contrary to what the crowd was chanting outside the door. So picking up where we left off in episode one, Jonah's become preoccupied with my first guru, Ron, who was twice my age when I was around 14 years old. He was a gay deadhead that got me into LSD. the part where you're talking about um was it rick ron dude the ron stuff was incredible you think yeah i really it was really sweet do you ever talk to him still or no we stopped talking (laughs) Uh, (laughs) wait why is that so funny just the way you said it was so loaded I've been seeing all this stuff about Back to the Future lately, and there's so much about Doc Brown and Marty McFly, how if that movie came out now, people would be like, he's a pedophile, this is creepy, this is weird. But when the movie was out, like at that period, it wasn't at all. You're just like, oh, these guys are friends, and there's a huge age gap. But it's like, you can't really do that now. Like, post, like, Michael Jackson, whatever, it's like, people are so suspicious of anything like that, that those types of relationships are just, there's so many implications.
I guess you have the internet now too, where it's like when we were kind of growing up, it's like you had to like seek this stuff out or find someone older or an older brother or someone to show you, Hey, check this out, go to this. Now I guess you can sort of figure all this stuff out on your own. So you don't really need that. Yep. You're exactly right. And that, and in a way, like Ron was like a uh, information bank for prog bands or something. You know what I mean? Right. Like right. he's like progarchives.com, you know? So I could go type in anything to Ron, you know, or whatever. Pre internet life was more based on having to go to the guru that has the specialized knowledge that you want. You know, you had to seek out this freak who had memorized all this shit. In Ron's case, you know, walls of like Grateful Dead live bootleg cassettes or something. Right. All the things that he had he had spent his life uh, archiving. And then that would in turn put you in all the types of positions in life that you would be in physically with that person, which if it was a drug dealer or whatever, now you just hit a button and everything comes to you. Right. So you don't, you don't compromise yourself in the same ways, which, you know, tunnel visions your entire worldview, right? I mean, you don't learn so much from other people, whether good or bad about the world, if you're just like able to do everything so easily, you know, but the Ron story is pretty complicated. Um, I don't think I really feel bad about using his real name. Well, it's, I think it's way too late now. I mean, it's a very, it's a very common name. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, let me say this. It's a very generic sounding name. Although I will say, I don't think I know anyone named that. True story of Ron was that he was actually a substitute teacher at my high school. How old do you think Ron is at this point? I would say he was probably 32. Okay. And I was probably like, I guess I would have had to have been 14. He had this reputation of being like the cool guy around school. And then he got fired. A substitute teaching is apparently like one of the worst jobs besides coal mining. And so <laughs> this was a very small town. And he was basically a sage in our tiny little environment. So after he got fired from the high school that I went to, he got me a job at the local family restaurant, and I couldn't be trusted with anything but uh, washing dishes, which I'm sure I was not good at. And my two partners were Tree and Marie, both uh, severely mentally disabled. Tree was about like a seven foot tall old black man that wore wraparound massive black shades at all times and was wildly loaded on some sort of night train at, at all times, but incredibly uh, positive to work with, to wash dishes with. And he called me Emi. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I definitely loved him as much as you can, like, love someone you don't really talk to. <laughs> the guy was kind of a legend. Nobody really, like, did interact with him much, but he kind of appeared out of the woods every morning on time, as far as I remember. So my my waking life was, was just trying to get to work and wash dishes with Tree. And, uh... Ron was out front. He was a very gregarious kind of, you know, everybody knew him. 
and he was hellbent on following the dead. So he's just kind of working for the man just long enough to get out there and follow the dead more. Right. Which is something I didn't understand. I was just into straight edge hardcore and was starting to open my mind into this idea that maybe I could be like a songwriter. And so Ron was kind of there like criticizing and, and giving me feedback and, and actually really appreciated that as I was starting to take LSD he had prepared me to take acid in, in the way that you do. It's like, you know, forget everything you know. <laughs> you know, right, like, right. the walls of reality, as you know them, Ron basically said, are just going to melt away, and you're going to have nothing to hold on to. You're, you're going to be completely alone in a new universe, and you're just going to have to trust yourself and the drug that you will find a new footing. He was trying to emphasize the gravity of how everything you've trusted in your life up to this point is going to be gone. That's that's the thing he was mostly trying to relay. Our supplies were like hilarious. You know, there's always be like a six pack of high life to come down, some Sid Barrett CDs, uh, the mind's eye VHS video in front of me, the headphones, and then, like, his wall of CDs, which at the time was, like, the Library of Congress of <laughs> drug music. <laughs> and so when he was going to go to bed, he just kind of set me off with these these supplies, you know. It's a very loving environment. Um, but the Mind's Eye videos are hilarious. You know, what, it's, it's, like, what are... It's like it's just a thousand vis- butterflies, but like an early computer animation. Right. All like kind of transforming into like a million robots with guns and marching, you know. It kind of sounds like just a shittier version of what you could actually just see on a psychedelic. Sure. But people, you know, they need to be spoon fed everything, don't they? <laughs> I just think that's such a weird concept to be like, do you want to take this psychedelic and then watch this like trippy video? It's like you could look at like a fucking like lamp and have like see something the craziest thing we've ever seen. My mind kind of goes back to a lot of moments when we took acid for the first time. And it's really just the feeling of being extremely powerful, maybe as powerful as anything can be in a moment, and feeling endlessly positive and confident philosophically, like not only is God on your side, but clearly you are, you are God. You are one and the same as the creative force that has built everything in the universe. And there's no separation at all. I mean, that seems like a obvious casual realization in that moment. So I think you're kind of getting hooked on the unselfconsciousness and the, and the power of feeling so free and so you. Like nothing is holding you back. I mean, those were the things that struck me as the whole point. Everybody else was talking about trails and stuff, but the whole point to me seemed to be something that was directly aligned with happiness. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, when you think of LSD, do you think of happiness? Not really. You think like 
more like a dark journey or yeah i felt like my experiences were never negative but they were never really happy i felt like i've had experience on like dmt and mushrooms that were super negative or super happy i felt like with lsd it was always just really introspective and kind of i was always crying but i was always like there's something i do in almost every psychedelic experience is i'll be crying but i won't be just tears will be running out down my face but i'm not crying like i would be sitting like i'm sitting right now and i wouldn't even know it till i went to go like itch my face or something like why is my hand wet and I remember that happened to me the first time while looking at this Alex Gray thing. I was like, why is this page getting all wet? As we headed towards 1995, which was the year that I took off before college, I was becoming a little bit more of a mess because I don't think I was able to adhere to the basic focus that I had brought into the drug experience. Like I slipped like everybody generally does, you know, everybody knows the guy that smokes pot, your buddy that smokes pot that like thinks he's some sort of religious character and he's just a guy that sits on the couch. Right. So how, like how often were you sort of tripping at this point? Getting high was a daily thing. And then maybe we were basically Rastafarians. <laughs> and then tripping was like more of like a weekend kind of thing, you know, where you could get away from everybody and obviously not have to worry about having to be at work on time. This would be 1994-ish. I had been running around with new kinds of characters, I guess. I suppose they were like types of kids that I maybe wouldn't have hung out with before. In other words, drug dealers, some of which were incredibly insecure people that just wanted to be liked and wanted to live some sort of dream as a different person. So as a drug dealer, they became important to other kids. And you could feel that those people were deeply fucked up and needed something from another person and maybe being their dealer somehow made them feel loved or something. Something really kind of gross about that moment of your life. You're basically consorting with people that you would never emotionally invest yourself in. One of my best friends that washed dishes with me was this kind of meandering, floundering, vaguely into hip-hop, smoke some pot, we play a little basketball, dude. And he had this other friend that I was aware of, and we would go over to his house and drink from his warm pony keg and smoke pot, because this guy always had pot and beer, which at that age was a little bit mysterious. Right. And then his mom was never home. Um... She didn't seem to exist. It was almost like he was set up there by witness relocation to party. <laughs> yeah. That sounds amazing. It was, yeah, it was a good job. But his room, everything just looked kind of thrown up. Like you, you had made a teenager's room look like a teenager's room that afternoon by a set designer. And the set designer had a really low budget. So as I hung out with this particular mysterious kid... He came into Ron's world somehow, like maybe he was getting us drugs. 
the early nineties in, in North Carolina was like a massive drug boom time because this was the heyday of the end of the Grateful Dead tours. So as Duncan often says, like that market drove tons of LSD into North Carolina. It was it was kind of known as a an explosion. So one night we're over at Ron's tripping and a bunch of the people from the family restaurant are, are, are in his living room, and it's extremely awkward. Is it's, Tree there? Tree never... <laughs> is Tree there? <laughs> That's amazing. Is Tree there? I think Tree only ever came to, like, one Christmas party. I okay. Don't, yeah, I don't think he really made it out. By the time the sun went down, yeah. he was probably crashed but uh i remember i walked in and one of the uh waiters was awkwardly trying to learn how to use a bong and it was like one of those really strange it seemed staged when you're tripping everything seems staged anyway like nobody seems to be doing anything for like a really literal uh motive it's like they may be setting something up and so this kid walked in and he seems very determined and and wants me to leave with him, leave Ron's living room to go pick up our other best friend. And uh I don't understand why I should leave. I just got to Ron's. I'm I'm happy to be like in a kind of safe place. I'm pretty much peaking. He's like, No, 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 we've gotta go get Aaron. We've gotta go get our friend. We have to have him. And I'm like, well, why can't he just come over here? I, I don't know why I have to do anything ever. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember him like picking up an old rotary phone, which was normal at the right. time. Yeah. And I remember him dialing a number and having a frenzied, like quick phone call with somebody. I rejected his advances, like, a few times until finally I was just like, I just want you to stop talking to me. Right. So I'll yeah, go yeah. with you. So I, so I decide to go into his car. I slide into his car and the, the door itself seems lubricated. Like I like slip into the car. That's the point where you're not sure if this is real or if you're just tripping or if, by being on acid, you are unconsciously picking up details about a psychological reality behind things. But getting into his car felt extremely unfamiliar. You know, maybe it's the way something smells. But in this circumstance, the actual car seemed lubricated. I don't know why. So we pull out into the road and three doors down... He dramatically pulls into a driveway. And I'm like, aren't we going to get Aaron? Why are we pulling in right here? And he's like, I just, I got to do a drug deal really quick. I just made this phone call. We just got to go in here really quick. So none of this seems right or normal, but door slams. I go out and follow him. And he walks up to basically a four by four shack back behind these houses. And it's, it's, uh, we're kind of in the woods now. 
It looks like a, an apartment out in the middle of nothing. And it has a chipboard door that, like, could easily be beaten through. And he immediately starts uh, banging on it so that the door is almost like falling through its hinges. And you can hear people inside going, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, you know. And I think repeatedly, every chance I get, I'm just like, why are we here? What are we doing? This doesn't make any sense. Is Aaron here? And so he's like, just, just chill. This will be quick, you know, figure this out. Eventually, the door swings open really fast. And it's a guy dressed like Michael Jackson, who I recognize from the local teen center where my hardcore band used to play. When you say Michael Jackson, like thriller, red leather jacket, Michael Jackson, sequence glove. All black. All black. All black, crotch, strap. So like bad era, Michael Jackson. You nailed it. Okay. Do you know where they filmed that video? Mm-mm. The Hoyt Skimmerhorn really? G-Stop. Yeah. Where he's like spray painting? Yeah. They're like they're doing that whole dance in like the subway. Do you think Weird Al filmed him there too? That's actually a really good question. I don't know. Yes, it is. We got to look that up. We'll look that up. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to... No, no. So on the left is a young kid dressed like Michael Jackson. So he's my age. I think he's maybe in my grade at the high school. Okay. But he's like one of those kind of shadowy kids that that doesn't seem like he actually even goes to class, you know? Because I'd only seen him at the teen center. And the teen center, you know, was only a place I went to play with my band. I didn't go there to hang out. Right. You know? But yeah, so I recognize him from the teen center, which now makes me think there was probably a lot more seedy shit going on than I ever would have known. By nature, you you are incredibly innocent at that age. Like, even though I'm on acid or whatever, I I really don't know shit about the world that I've accidentally found myself in. So we were, you're at this house, banging on the door looking for Aaron, or you're wondering where Aaron is. You're tripping. Yeah, the characters are Michael Jackson, (laughs) the kid who has led me there, who has always seemed kind of like he's in witness relocation. Right. And uh, Aaron, who's missing in action, we can't find him. And so he's banging on the chipboard door. The door swings open of this 4 by 4 shack in the woods, and it's Michael Jackson on the left, And on the right is a kind of middle-aged white drifter that sticks out his hand and says, Hey, nice to meet you. I'm Gary. And he's got jean shorts on and like a teal polo. He's wearing some glasses, um, pretty conservative haircut. And he, uh, he is like, shakes my hand and introduces himself and then just walks past me. And he's like, I got to go now and leaves. And so now it's just me, the witness relocation kid, and Michael Michael Jackson, yeah. And uh, they immediately start kind of bumping into each other, like they're trying to whisper something, like, this is how it's going to go down, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm thoroughly confused. I can't perceive why I'm here, how I've gotten here. This seems like it would be confusing even if you weren't on acid. It would be. It would be because I guess I guess that's one of the telltale signs of abduction is that 
you're in a cab and, or something and they start going the wrong way. Right. And you go, sir, where are you going? And he's like, doesn't answer. Right? Absolutely. So, yeah, it would be confusing. Did you have that thing, that moment, where, like, you realize, like, something is... Well, I never stopped asking him where we were going, but at this point, I can't even perceive what any of the motivations could be. I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm like, just watching them in utter confusion. Like Ron said, you know, the walls of, of reality that you've known will come melting down, and you will be left to figure out how to survive in a completely new reality. But so you didn't have the instinct at this point to beat it? <laughs> sorry, I'm really sorry. Just... You don't seem sorry. I'm not. I'm actually not sorry. Um, as far as I know, they're they're doing a drug deal, but then they turn to me and they're like, "We're going to be right back. Just wait here." Now they're going to exchange drugs, but it didn't make any sense. I couldn't figure out why I, they couldn't do any of that in front of me, or maybe it was something that was in the car. Drug deals aren't known for their transparency, I guess. I mean, who knows, right? Especially then, you right. know, there was there was something still very insidious about the world you were getting into. Whereas now it's just like you go into a government shop to buy candy, basically. Um, now I'm in a shack alone, and I'm looking around the walls. Similar to this kid's room at his mom's house, nothing seems quite real. There's something fake about everything. Like, like everything's very cheap. Everything seems kind of so generic. So I sit down on a picnic table, which doesn't make sense either, in the corner of the shack. Behind me, there's a tiny waterproof sport boombox and around me, you know, it's some kind of like these pot posters. And then there's some lamps and there's like a pink, fluffy, decorative thing draped around everything to make it seem more uh, inviting, I suppose. And then on the wall, I scan over and there is a massive thumbtacked wall of porn. In the middle of it, there's a big section dedicated to LaToya Jackson, and then there's another section below that that's all three-way scenes. Kind of glossy porn, like not really like cheap, weird, amateur porn. And uh, they come busting back in the room, and they seem strangely happy maybe trying to put me at ease because they could tell that I I wouldn't stop asking questions and I was really unsettled. And so he comes in, reaches behind me and and hits play on the uh, tape recorder and it starts playing Beck, Loser. I'd never seen him act this way, but he starts kind of dancing around and looking at the porn on the wall and focusing in on the three-way area and saying out loud, hmm, three-way. And so my brain puts together that this is like this kidnapping seduction attempt. 
and it seemed clear that that he had assumed that I was secretly gay and he was secretly gay. And I had kind of thought back to hanging out with this guy all the time and he was massively, massively homophobic. Like, he was always making some sort of, like, really malicious kind of attempts at at being funny about people being gay. So I couldn't put it all together. It just didn't make any sense until all of a sudden he's saying, hmm, three-way, and then it just clicks, and you're, like, realizing you're in a shack in the woods. I think I started shaking my head in disbelief. It was like, wait, like, you really think you're going to coerce me into some sort of three-way? Like, acid's not a good drug to facilitate that <laughs> and I just remember busting out the chipboard door and, and running through the gravel because I'm only three four houses down from Ron's house so I can just run home oh I didn't realize you were so close well that was what was so weird is but you who drove the, there yeah I have no idea whose place this was I mean I assume it was Michael Jackson's but like yeah it just happened to be like four doors down so when I when I run out the door to escape, I hear him coming after me and screaming after me. Don't tell anybody. I think maybe he just got really, really worried really fast. So I run back, and I, I assume I just told everybody the whole story. It was like the first thing I did was tell everybody. <laughs> That being said, I didn't run around and tell the whole town because it was a small town. I probably told Ron and a friend on the couch back at at Ron's house. And the couple kids that were my friends that I tried to tell, I remember them not believing me, thinking that was a really fucked up thing for me to say or something. Like in that David Lynch way, you know, in a small town, like there's not, people don't really believe that there's any greater intrigue going on. But the people that are part of any sort of underworld are sort of like a, a select few or a little secret society. I seem to remember trying to tell someone about it once and they, they told me that that kid was on heroin and got in some sort of trouble that had something to do with child porn. I remember one night being really high, driving home around like five in the morning and seeing him out by the side of the highway, sort of in the woods. My headlights like flashed on him and he was alone walking through the woods, gripping his hands and just sort of clenching them. And his eyes looked rolled back in his head, wandering out in the middle of nowhere. It was just the last time I ever saw him was my headlights hit him and he looked like he'd succumbed to some sort of heroin existence. Later on, I was driving along with Aaron. I remember a really silent moment in the car. Aaron turned to me and he said, you know, there are some things that I feel really guilty about. I just feel like... I really have been dishonest with you and everybody. And I'm like, I don't feel like you have. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. All we do is smoke pot, play basketball, 
listen to your ice cube tape. I mean, this isn't a really profound <laughs> relationship. <laughs> and I said, well, why do you feel so guilty, man? And he was like, I just, everything that you know me to be has been a front. And I'm like, I don't even think I know what the word front means. What do you mean exactly? And he's just like, I just been putting on appearances for you. I've just been trying to be cool, and I don't want to be like that anymore. You know, when you're 16, you're like, I was almost as confused as I was in the in the shack, you know? I was just like, I think I know what you mean on some technical level, but maybe I was honest with myself to a fault, so I didn't really understand what it meant to really lie to other people on the level that he had been doing. He never even cleared up exactly what he meant. All he was trying to ultimately tell me was that the person I knew him to be is not him. And that everything I know him to be is something he'd invented for me because he thought that I would like that person. And it left me with a, a totally eerie feeling about everyone all the time. But B, it just kind of like, why would anyone do that? It made me realize that maybe underneath there are levels of self-loathing that are actively guiding everybody's development of their persona that, that had never even occurred to me before, you know? But it left me with this kind of dis-ease about everybody all the time, you know? <clears throat> Don't you sort of feel like everyone's doing that all the time? maybe to a lesser extent like I feel like you're always kind of presenting the version of your personality that you think the other person will sort of like I'm different talking to you than I am talking to my grandma well I think there's levels of it that are entirely unconscious and I think there are levels of it that are conscious that's why I was so confused is because I didn't admit to any conscious levels of doing that and and I don't think I've really ever had much time to deceive people on purpose. It's a lot, yeah, it's probably it's a lot of work. Yeah, that's the thing that's actually the hardest for me to understand. Is yeah, that I, I have all these other things I want to do with my life, and uh, impressing somebody else is like something I'd always kind of hoped I would do through my accomplishment, my actual things that that I'd been refining about myself from. Also, like, being a skateboarder that was into punk music, there was an intrinsic ethic of, like, independence, self-loyalty, uh, everybody can fuck off, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. So, so if you're rooted, if, if your early life is rooted in, like, things like punk attitude and, and skateboarding, things like that, and I'm talking about in the heyday of the puritanical ghetto beliefs, it's not like, oh, that looks cool. I kind of want to do that or anything like that. It's like, this is what I am. Get the fuck out of my life. You know what I mean? Being molded in that atmosphere gives you this whole sarcastic slant towards the world. And so as this kid is telling me, oh, I've been putting up this front, although I'm like 15, 16 or whatever, and I acknowledge that what he's saying to me is like this moment of intense honesty, but... I mean, I'm kind of thinking it's a little bit pathetic at the same time. I'm just sort of like, what the fuck are you going to gain from all these idiots around us 
because you like walk with a little like gangster limp and put your hat to the side and like have an ice cube tape like what that doesn't <laughs> what grand moral transgression have you committed like i just didn't really get it but i understand that at night when he would lie in bed and stare at the ceiling i understand that that he hated himself ultimately i guess is what he was trying to say or he felt that he wasn't special interesting and worthy of like uh maybe worthy of our relationship or something i mean that's kind of a weird thing to think about because i wasn't really trying to get to some grand religious truth through through our the time we spent together i was trying to play basketball and get high or whatever so uh it wasn't exactly like I expected much of him, but I, yeah, it really threw me and left me with the desire to have more people be ruthlessly honest like that all the time in life. And as the, as maybe the facade of like high school kind of melts away and you see the prom queen turn into a heroin addict and you see like the prom king kill himself, which are, you know, those, those ha things happened in my high school as those things happen, you start to kind of uh, wonder why people aren't just ruthlessly honest all the time. Because not only would everything be way more interesting, <laughs> but it, everything would be so much more um, gratifying. Like, you would actually relate to other people so much deeper. I mean, it'd be almost like everybody being like Neil Young or something, you know, like being like you ask him a simple question and they literally tell you exactly how they feel ruthlessly. You know, maybe that's, maybe that would create a very inefficient world. But to me, I would have more affection for people because I would really, um, I wouldn't have to reach through a wall of alienness. I would be able to see the value in their struggle every day all the time you know i would i would be able to humanize everything i don't know, i guess i've never really imagined a universe like that but that kid saying that to me just made me confused and wonder why anybody tries to deceive other people i mean why don't you think it just rests entirely in self-loathing yeah i mean it's probably like there's like a level of insecurity there too where it's like maybe you know you think if you sort of show your true self you'll get rejected It makes me think about this specific drug deal I was in one time where these two kind of criminals, basically, were in the room. And when I say criminal, I mean these were two people that distinctly nobody knew their background, yet they were in the community. You interact with them on a regular basis, but you never know anything about them. They didn't go to your high school. Everybody else in the room is, like, clearly on the grid, and kind of a, a vaguely law-abiding. But these two guys, they're kind of the kids that, that have a shadowy origin. They got into some sort of, like, pissing contest. And I remember one of the kids interrupting the other one and just going, you're just a bag of lines, man. And I remember thinking, like, what the fuck is going on? The way that the guy said, you're just a bag of lines struck me as so odd it was like one chameleon calling out another 
knowing exactly what he was up to. And once he said it, of course, you looked over at the other guy, who was actually my friend, and you knew exactly what he was talking about. You were like, yeah, everything he's saying does sound rehearsed. It does sound like all part of a plot or something. And behind it is kind of nothing. It's like, this guy isn't really who he says he is. And later on, we found out exactly how right that was. I guess I can tell that one next time. And it gets fucked up. I was in a conversation the other day with a guy who was doing exactly that. You know, like, I I heard the voice in my head say, this guy's just a bag of lines. That's a very insidious feeling. In, like, in reaction to things you were saying to him? Or, like... Well, in both cases, it's somebody who deeply needs to feel that they're impressing someone else. But it also seems like they've data mined and created a context for the stories. Like, it's all constructed a little too well. It's kind of like the pot posters on this kid's wall. Everything's a little bit too generic, you know? Like, the whole concept of trust is based on having some form of roots with someone or at least being able to fact check them in some way. Aaron or that kid in in the car was, was basically shedding light on it for me. He was like, yeah, you got to look into this stuff. How do you know? I like ice cube. All you know is that I have the cassette on the floor of my car. You know what I mean? Like everything starts to fall away when you really put it under the microscope. Like, how do I know your last name is your last name? I don't know. Because I don't really think about, like, my childhood that much. Nothing, like, horrible happened to me, but I just, I don't like thinking about it. It makes me really sad. My sister was really sick for a while, and I just had, like, 
some weird stuff happen where I was just like, just felt like I never really like knew what was going on. It was like a very confusing kind of thing for me. Like there's parts that I wish I could like regain too. Like I feel like, you know, like that feeling when you're like 15, wherever you're like, oh, this kind of sucks. But like, I'm going to get to go to college. Like that's going to be amazing. And then I'm going to like figure out what I want to do. And I'm going to like have sex with girls. Like that's going to be crazy. And then you kind of do all that stuff. And then you're like, yeah. And then you like wake up and you're 36 and you're like, yeah, that was cool. But I mean, like sort of like now what? Like what now? Like what is there really to look forward to? So you're talking about regaining the Re- mystique and the and the curiosity and the yeah. magic of it. Yeah, I feel like things just kind of like get at least for me, it just kind of gets duller. It's like I still get excited about stuff, but not like that. Like remember when like you'd go want to like see a band, you'd buy tickets like a month in advance. You like couldn't fall asleep the night before because you're so excited. Now I feel like my favorite band is like my friends and they're playing like in my neighborhood. I'm like, ugh, I don't want to get off the couch. I think that there's almost nothing you can do to stop that process besides merely follow the curiosities that you do have because that's all you did as a child anyway. So you were born of like an explosion of some form of enthusiasm and maybe some of that enthusiasm dies off. But just as you were then, I mean, you played with, you know, a certain toy and you watched a certain show how profound is that? Not that profound. Now you kind of do the same thing. Right. You know, and there's all these studies on like why the past s- strikes us as so much more meaningful than the present. All you really have in front of you is like this task of potentially reawakening any of those feelings by getting off the couch actually and and following your curiosities as they exist now, which I think there is a lethargy as you get older. I think there's like a fatigue to it all because you're like, oh, I've gotten off this couch so many times and I kind of know that it just ends back here. (laughs) Right, right. right. So you're just kind of like, do I have to do that today? But that's the same form of laziness that you had when you were eight. Same thing. Do you remember in like fourth, fifth grade having these like daydreams where the whole school burned down or was like being bombed and you <laughs> rescue the hot girl and you carry her out of the burning building mine was always like some band i liked would just start playing in the middle of the room like hot water music just like would walk into like my science class and just start playing and i would like run up and start singing that is straight out of like <laughs> kids incorporated yeah. <laughs> that's pretty bad <laughs> I had a very one-track mind. But no, I mean, I'm sure I had stuff like that, too. I mean, I don't know if that's, like, a cliche, but... I remember having, like, these kinds of dreams at night or something where you kind of go up in front of the whole school and you show them. It's like some climax of an 80s film where you make a speech. Totally. Yeah, and everyone's like, sees something in you that they never could have recognized before. (laughs) It's so sad. (laughs) Oh my god Yeah and then everyone's like wow this person's actually so interesting And I never recognized it And I had a specific fantasy Of this particular kid Beating me bloody And then I would rise up And make some sort of speech (laughs) 
but like a really perverse success story, right? Because like you're just you're this horrible martyred victim. <laughs> I don't know what the purpose was, but for some reason your ego will find a way to uh, <laughs> to write some sort of like uh, heroic 80s ending to anything. What do you think was at the bottom? Why did my ego want want that? Maybe it's a, it's an underdog story. It's an underdog story. I mean, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think there is like a certain like satisfaction in that kind of martyrdom and sort of you're the one who's suffering, sort of quietly, and then sort of being recognized like. Yeah. Being rewarded for that sort of thing that seems like you're so is so alone and so singular to you. Well, that's the thing about those daydreams is that you're like, you want to be the star, you know, of the show. You're dreaming that the world will some at some point, at some point, gather around you <laughs> and all unanimously applaud, even if that did happen. Then they're going to stop, and then they're going to go off and do the things they need to go do. But, like, there's no point at which this stuff will ever happen. You'll never be the star. But, like, you basically systematically keeping satisfaction at bay, you keeping the resolution of the story from happening... It's part of the entire system of staying curious and and keeping mystique alive to some degree. It's a different kind of mystique as you grow older. But, like, you have to not be satisfied to keep trying. So it's part of a system of how the world keeps you working, keeps you moving, is that, like, you can't really have what you want. If you have what you want, then... That would be the true death of mystique, basically. That would be the true death of your curiosity. I think on one hand, you're just, you're partially analyzing or maybe overanalyzing a relatively healthy part of how the brain grows as it evolves and wants to find something new to be curious about. It goes through periods of stagnancy where it's frustrated and doesn't see any magic in anything but without that feeling of dissatisfaction there wouldn't be any sort of uh will to climb up into a new horizon you know so there it's intrinsic to be frustrated it's intrinsic to be uh depressed because it leads to new horizons Nothing 